You're listening to Drek FM. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. I never liked these curtains. Set them on fire in my fourth year. <laughs> By accident, of course. I put you in terrible danger this year, Harry. I'm sorry. Professor, when I was in the graveyard, there was a moment um, when Voldemort's wand and mine sort of connected. You saw your parents that night, didn't you? They reappeared. No spell can reawaken the dead, Harry. I trust you know that. Dark and difficult times lie ahead. Soon we must all face the choice between what is right and what is easy. Remember this. You have friends here. You're not alone. Welcome, everyone, to Trek FM's local watering hole. I'm so excited to be coming back live from the Leaky Cauldron. It's great to be back. We have so much to talk about tonight, and uh, I I can't wait to hear everybody's thoughts on this one. Uh, so if, if you want to catch up with the 602 Club, you know you can find us all over the place. We're on iTunes at iTunes.com slash TrekFM. We're a feature provider there at iTunes with uh, TrekFM. We're so excited to be part of TrekFM. Of course, you can write us an email. Go to trek.fm slash contact. Of course, there's voicemail. I'd love to get some voicemails. It's been a while since Alice has called in, so maybe <laughs> maybe, maybe she'll she'll uh, send us uh, her dulcet tones. Speakpipe.com slash TrekFM. Of course, you can find us on the Babel Conference, our listeners-only discussion group. Just type Babel in the search field on Facebook, or, of course, you can go to our website at trek.fm and click discussion in the menu bar. And, of course, we're also on Twitter at TrekFM. So excited that we've got Megan back in Yay. the Leaky Cauldron 602 Club to to talk about another Harry Potter film. We are just cruising through the Harry Potter movies. How's it going, Megan? It's going great. This is actually kind of a perfectly timed podcast because I was just uh, at Diagon Alley a couple of weeks ago out in Orlando, Florida, and it was pretty freaking amazing. So for anybody who hasn't been to Harry Potter World Give us kind of a quick synopsis of, of what it's like to walk through the streets of the wizarding world and Hogwarts itself. Okay, so um, so if you go to the one in Orlando, there's two different sides to the park. That's the important thing to know. One side has um, Hogsmeade and the other side has Diagon Alley and you can ride the Hogwarts Express between the two different parks. Um, Does the lady come by with... 
Wizarding it's, World candy. It's this whole experience. There's you can't buy any candy from anyone, but it's a whole experience. Like there's stuff that happens, and you see shadows of Hermione and Ron and Harry walking by, and other students trying to find seats on the train. It's only like a five minute ride, but they they make it a whole experience. It's really really cool. Uh, Hogsmeade is much much smaller, and it's really crowded. So if you're gonna go shopping, if you want to get your wand and your robes, do that over at Diagon Alley. Um, Diagon Alley is gigantic. We only had like an hour, um, to spend at Diagon Alley and it was not enough time. Um, and they also did a fantastic job of hiding the entrance. You actually have to know where to look to get into Diagon Alley. Um, and the entrance, they made it smell like fish. So oh you actually don't <laughs> even want to go down that hallway. There was a girl that turned around and came right back. She's like, I'm not going in there. It smells terrible. And Diagon Alley was behind it, so she totally missed out. It's just so cool. It's, there's so much to see. The wands are really fun. They activate things around um, the park. Uh, I got my Hufflepuff robe, so I'm official now. I got my wand. Nice. Is, now, is that what you have been put in by Pottermore, yes. the official website? Okay. I'm a yeah. Ravenclaw, so uh, congratulations. Yeah, you should get yours. That way, and now I've always got a costume for yeah, for no Halloween kidding, and stuff. no yeah. kidding. Well, I've, it's funny because I've got the uh, scarf and the tie for Gryffindor, and I I, I do that a lot for Halloween. But it would be fun to have the official Ravenclaw robes be, since I am in that house. They're so fun. They're like a hundred bucks, so they will That's set you back a little bit, but it's not too terrible. The best part about them, though, is they've got a special little pocket for your wand oh. on the inside. Well, I mean, you got to have a place for your wand. Yeah, it's just so cool, and you feel like such an amazing, happy little geek when you're wearing your <laughs> robes. Um, oh, and if you go, definitely, definitely get some butterbeer. It's really good. Um, it's, again, kind of pricey, but uh, totally worth it. The foam well, on top I mean, is really sweet, and then the soda underneath is not quite as sweet. It's really, really good. They pretty much have found a way to ream every last dollar out of you as a fan of just about anything these days. Yeah. So, <laughs> Oh, my gosh. And the Hogwarts ride was amazing. I mean, it's got its own little story for why muggles are inside the Hogwarts castle. And uh, my husband, Matthew, and I were just, sh were just so impressed with all of the work that they put into making all of the everything at Universal Studios looks movie quality. Like you feel like you're immersed in whatever movie you're visiting. Like we went and did the Jurassic Park ride, which was another like geek dream come true. Um, but yeah, the Harry Potter world, I mean, just amazing. You need at least a day just to do all the Harry Potter stuff and then another day to visit the rest of the park probably. Well, that is that is good for everybody to remember and, and great to know that they also have opened the Harry Potter world on the West Coast now yeah. in L.A. So gives us that are on the West Coast like myself a lot more uh, ability really to, to visit because Orlando is just such a hard place to get to and not yeah. cost a fortune. So um, still trying to figure out how I'm going to get to Star Wars Celebration next year. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, if you want to contribute to that, just email me. Because I'd love to be there. <laughs> anyway. I'll take some donations to you. <laughs> there you go. go that. Get like, Megan and I to Star Wars Celebration. Yeah. And we'll make sure to give back some amazing podcasts or something. Uh, anyway, let's let's <laughs> jump in because uh, so we're back at Hogwarts and, you know, Prisoner of Azkaban changed the game for the Harry Potter movies. And I, I think 
you know, as we jump into Goblet of Fire, that this movie continues that trend. It also changes the game a little bit, uh, especially, I think, for people who had read the books. And, you know, the third movie uh, had to cut some things out of the book. And this movie, I think everybody coming in knew, okay, we're going to have to massively change something. Otherwise, we're talking like a 10-hour miniseries instead of, (laughs) you know, a a two-and-a-half-hour movie. And one of the biggest things that they do uh, and I thought this was really interesting. Obviously, you know, we had Alfonso Corion uh, direct uh, Prisoner of Azkaban. But getting back to Hogwarts this time, we're going to have a new director, and it's Mike Newell. And so I just kind of wanted to get your general impressions. You know, I know you're a huge, obviously, Harry Potter geek. You went to Harry Potter world. You love this world. What did you think, you know, the first time you kind of came out of the Goblet of Fire, having experienced it as a fan? Well, I mean, the Goblet of Fire is my favorite book in the series. Um, I feel like that's kind of an unpopular choice, but, you know. No, that's, my it's wife, my it's her favorite too, so. Um, and, you know, there's so much going on in there. This is like the first book that starts to get ridiculously long. Um, and I think that Newell did a fantastic job of hitting all of the really important things in the film and really capturing kind of the important struggles because this whole, the whole story is really just about friction. There's just constant friction happening everywhere. Nothing is going right for Harry. Nothing's going right for Hermione and Ron. Um, and this is when things really start to get really scary in the wizarding world and things start to get more adult. Um, and the dangers of Voldemort and his death eaters coming back are really becoming apparent. Um, and I think he did a great job of transitioning us out of that happy go lucky, wonderful magic Mm -hmm. is really fun area and starting to turn us into that dark place where the story eventually goes. I think that's a really good point uh, that you're talking about because, you know, I, as rewatching the movie, and it's been a while since I'd seen this one, I was struck by how funny it is. It, it feels almost yeah. romantic comedy-ish in that kind of slapstick humor that's going on. And part of that is because we're in that awkward stage where, um, you know, I, I remember my sister <laughs> got a gift from her friends. Uh, they gave her awkward stage Barbie that they had created where her <laughs> hair was all frizz and she had glasses and bad clothes and stuff. Because that's the stage that these kids are in. You know, they're 14 oh, totally. years old and everything is awkward. Um, and it really is that awkward coming of age, you know, romantic type comedy where everything is a little bit off for everybody and... But at the same time, like you said, there's this undercurrent of danger. I mean, the movie even starts with the danger, and then we kind of move into the funny. And what I think Mike Newell brought that had been touched on a little bit by Alfonso Corrion, but really came to light here, was the controlled chaos that it Mm -hmm. is to have a boarding school where you have hundreds of students and you know maybe 25 to 30 adults trying to control these hormone crazed teenagers yeah yeah that really comes out in this one i think the yule ball has a big um Mm -hmm. plays a big role in that um and then 
you actually see Dumbledore kind of lose control at one point too. I mean, he has to yell a couple of times. Um, so yeah, you, you really get that. They're in, you're totally right. They're in that super awkward growth spurt stage where awkward stage Potter. Yeah. And they're all, you know, they're all the actors too are all physically going through those weird teenagery growth spurts. And so this is one of the movies where they all look kind of unfortunate because they're going through that, which is just fun. Um, <laughs> the only one who doesn't seem to go through that is, uh, you know, I'd, I'd say Emma Watson herself. The boys kind of have that, but I think she, I mean, she never seemed, she ages very gracefully. It's because girls go through that in middle school, so she's already gone through it. Yeah, lucky yeah. her, because all the boys, <laughs> like, you know, they their hair is all ridiculous in this movie, their voices are you know, cracking all over the place. Their noses and, and their teeth yeah, don't yeah. fit their face. Yeah, it's it's so unfortunate. These these young actors were so incredibly brave and generous with us as viewers to age like that in front of us on camera because that can't it just can't be easy. And then we get to see so much of the super teenagery stuff in this one. Like the dance just really brings all of that stuff out with who's going to go with who and all of this teenage drama that, you know, as a 30 year old adult, you don't really care about. But watching this, I was totally fine with it because it's like, yeah, this is exactly what it was like to be 14, 15 years old. And I can't even imagine doing it away from home. So yeah, there's, there's so much, there's some really good stuff going on in here. And I love Hermione and Ron constantly fighting because it's brilliant. Yeah, well, and and that's such the wonderful thing that she does, uh, in, especially throughout the series, J.K. Rowling, you know, that whole kind of love-hate relationship that they have with each other and the opposites attract thing that's definitely going on. And there's there's that wonderful sense of, of like I said, controlled anarchy in the school. I mean, you know, the, the Weasley twins, you know, with them fighting constantly and, uh, of course, you know, uh, Really fighting, uh, throwing punches after their plan doesn't work to put their names in the <laughs> goblet of fire. Scene. I mean, that whole, I mean, just the whole thing, there was something about the castle where I feel like it finally came to life that this is where these students live for, you know, seven years of their life. And seven years of their life, yes, but also, you know, like seven months out of the year. And I, I think it really, um, there, again, I, Mike Newell is somebody who is British. He lived in that world. He understood mm -hmm. it, and he was able to bring it to the screen, especially for all of us in America who don't really understand what this world is kind of like. So I think that, to me, it just that's where the movie really succeeds is in that area. And so I, I think Mike Newell was actually the perfect choice for director especially for this film. Yeah, I think he just did a great job. And and this this movie was just a really big undertaking. Um, so I, I really enjoy it. I mean, it's not, it, again, it doesn't fit everything into it, but they did a really great job of of doing everything that they could to tell the story in the best way that they could. And and again, they hit all of, for me, they hit all of the really key things that, that happened in the story, so. Well, and and what was interesting about this movie too and it had to be hard doing it is that there are a lot of new characters 
that we're introduced to. And, you know, some of them will become very important uh, for the series. And, you know, so Brendan Gleeson playing Alistair Moody, even though it's not really Alistair Moody, it's Barty Crouch Jr. as Alistair Moody. But this is our first introduction to him, especially on screen here. And if you had never read the books, this would be your first. And man... I love Brendan Gleeson and just about anything he's in. Same here. But he's like... I just love him. He's perfect as this character. And I, I love I love what happens with this character too because it's so frustrating because you see him. It seems like he's actually developing a mentor relationship with Harry and Harry is so totally latching on to that and it feels comfortable and it feels like something that Harry has been longing for, for a long time. And then bam, right at the end, just out of left field, like it was all a lie. And so come next, the next time we see this character, we have no idea who he actually is because the guy that we've been identifying with and getting to know for this whole movie wasn't actually him. And, and it makes for such an interesting story, you know, um, because the last time that we had a Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, it was Lupin, and he really was a great mentor for mm-hmm. Harry. And you see that kind of playing out here again, but then, like you said, the rug gets pulled out from under Harry at the end to realize that this guy had been a lie. And what's interesting, and, and what I do miss from the book, is that... Harry learns a lot of skills, though, from Alistair's class, uh, Alistair slash Crouch Jr.'s class, that he actually will be able to use later on, uh, especially in book five. So it's very interesting that even though he is the enemy, and we don't know it until the end of the movie, um, throughout the book, and we just don't get this, is that he's actually instilling Harry with some really valuable lessons that are going to be important, especially even just referring to the uh, unforgivable curses. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, and so I, I I love that, that that he's actually in some ways hurting his side by what he's doing. It's just really interesting to yeah. watch evil destroy itself in that way. Yeah, it really makes you wonder, it makes me want to know more about the Barty Crouch character who hadn't really stood out to me for very much, but rewatching this, it makes me want to go back and rewatch and reread the book because it's been, you know, a really long time since I read the book, but um yeah, he's like taking Harry under his wing and the same with Neville. Like he's he's helping out Neville. He took an interest in him as soon as he knew that he was really into herbology. He starts giving him tips and teaching him about important plants. So it's like, who is this guy, Barty Crouch? And it, it's just fascinating that he gets so close to all of these characters. And you brought up the point too, we're missing out a lot on a lot of the schoolwork, which is always one of my favorite parts of the books mm-hmm. is experiencing the classes with the students. And unfortunately, that's really what we lose out on in a lot of these movies, actually, because that's that's the stuff that tends to get cut. But I do, I agree with you. I wish we could have seen much more of that because he does learn an awful lot from him. Well, and and on that side, you know, David Tennant, which I mean, I just did not get enough screen time. David Tennant. I mean, he's yeah. the 10th doctor. To me, he's the best doctor uh, as yeah, Barty Crouch Jr. Sure. But it is very interesting because him playing that role, they transform that character from the book to be different. I mean, yeah, um, 
the comparison here, and, and my wife and I were talking about this, and I was trying to figure out kind of how they, and, and my idea was is that they just streamlined every single plot point into the movie to as simple as possible. Yeah. And so his character really kind of suffers from that because he becomes more of a, a mustache-twirling villain than the very um, sad character that he is in the book who has a you know a father who turns his back on him when he's made a mistake um and and basically he's a mirror for snape and you know snape has the forgiveness of dumbledore and is able to turn his life around and, and do something great with it whereas barty crouch's junior's father barty crouch yeah turns his back on his son immediately and sends him to azkaban for the mistake that he's made and instead of giving him another chance. And I think it's just a really interesting look at, you know, the idea of like the prison system and all that kind of stuff. I mean, Rowling is doing so much in these books that it gets cut out. So, but his portrayal here is so creepy and so wonderful <laughs> that, oh my gosh, he was just, ha I think he was having a blast anytime that he was actually oh, getting to be yeah. on screen. I think he just loves doing what he does. I don't think I've ever seen David Tennant do anything where I thought, man, he is just not having fun. <laughs> like, I think he just loves what he does and you see it in everything. I mean, he's only in what, two and a half scenes in this movie and he steals those scenes that he's in. He shows up and he just acts the crap out of them. Not enough screen time. Yeah, I want, it, I want more. Uh, I wish there was more Barty Crouch Jr. in this. No, and I, I, I completely agree because there there's something about his portrayal, and I just wish that they had given him more nuance to the character, especially as it was in the book, because I just think that um, I feel like he just deserved that. I mean, it's David Tennant, for gosh sakes. Uh, right. So <laughs> he really does deserve to, to have uh, more to do. But what he does do here, I think, is quite fantastic so cannot complain uh with them casting him and and i think he honestly I mean, he can do whatever he wants he's <laughs> david freaking tenant so the the next character that i love that they brought from the book and i i do have to say i think is downright perfect is miranda richardson as oh Rita my Steven. gosh and i had totally forgotten about her character until she showed up on screen and i was like oh yes here comes the peanut gallery she's just such a hilarious character and she throws herself into that role yeah she is perfect um i i just i love her the she is the world's best tabloid journalist in film. Like, <laughs> that's exactly what she is. Even though she works for the Daily Prophet, um, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, she makes it feel like trash journalism. And I, Absolute you, trash, yeah. Yeah, and you have to feel like that Rowling is, you know, definitely trashing the... the the tabloids. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The ones the that terrible you terrible English tabloids. Oh, just yeah. awful English tabloids. So um I am not as familiar with the English tabloids in the sense that they're I don't know all horrible. their names, but I know that they're horrible. Uh and so I I am I'm right there with her. And she does such a great job. 
with it. So I, I really like her performance. And they do such a great job of fitting that into a really tiny scene, right? Because mm-hmm. you find out she, I mean, right from the get-go, she has absolutely zero interest in in telling the truth at all. Like she doesn't even get Harry's age correct, right? And yeah. working with journalists for the last eight years, that's like a basic thing. <laughs> yeah. My eyes are not swimming with the ghosts of my dead parents. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. It's just awesome. And she's always calling Harry 12. And I love how she, and I had totally forgotten that she had like tried to uh, manipulate this love story between Harry and Hermione, uh, which I, I loved as soon as it came up, I was like, Oh, that's right. I thought it was so funny. um, Cause I'm, I've never been a Harry Hermione shipper. I know those mm-hmm. people are out there, but... Um, yeah, it's weird that they're out there, but they're out there. <laughs> I get it. I, you know, they've got chemistry, but to me, it's always been friendship chemistry, which is why the whole Rita Skeeter thing was right, so right. hilarious that she tried to push them together in her stories. Well, and and I think that's interesting, you know, you're just talking about that whole idea of, of, of the ships. Um, and, and you can... I mean, I think she tips her hand here by doing that. Rowling is really showing you, no, Harry and Hermione are friends. Right. And that's why this is ridiculous. Um, This book makes that really, really clear. The story, this book, yeah. Well, so we, we have another great character that's introduced, and unfortunately he will not make it to the end. But uh, before... He became a vampire in a film that I can't stand. He was Cedric Diggory. And I have to say, I I think (laughs) that Robert Pattinson is really good as Cedric Diggory. He's so good. He's so good. I had, so Cedric was one of my favorite characters. I loved him so much. He's the face of Hufflepuff, right? Like he's the one character. He's the golden boy, literally. He's the golden boy. Yeah. He's the one character that really gives us a glimpse of what the Hufflepuff kids are like. And I had a huge crush on him. I thought he was phenomenal. I thought he was perfect for the role. He was so dashing. And then his death is so true so tragic mm-hmm. i mean it just made me ball my eyes out i used to have a cedric diggory button oh. with robert pattinson on my backpack that i would carry around and i had to take that sucker off as soon as twilight came out but you know things happen but it took so cedric hours to figure it out almost all the bubbles were gone Myrtle. <laughs> oh she's so creepy she, like, tries yeah to pose like the mermaid yeah she's so creepy she's such a creepster uh, yeah yeah it's creepy. what's 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 wonderful and this has nothing to do with what we're talking about but i just love how she is dealt with by harry Harry oh, has yeah. such a respect for her. He treats her with such kindness that other people don't. Yeah. You know, I'm, you can tell he's uncomfortable with everything. But he's very patient about it. But he's it. very patient and he's <laughs> very kind to her. And it, yeah. it, it's a wonderful, it's just a really nice thing that Harry has uh, as a part of his character. And maybe that's because he's somebody who grew up mistreated. And therefore, he tries to treat others with the respect he wasn't given. So I really do like that. So, yeah, I think that's a great point. I think Harry has a lot of compassion for a lot of the magical elements and creatures and beings in in Hogwarts that other people take for granted. I think that's a great point. Mm. Um, 
And a quick aside uh, back to Universal. Um, if you go go to the bathrooms, uh, because Moaning Myrtle's in the bathrooms at oh, Universal great. Studios. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. I bet a lot of men miss on accident just because she popped up. Uh, so <laughs> she just talks to you. You hear her talking while you're in there. It's kind of okay. creepy. Okay. Fantastic. Whew. Anyway, back to yeah. The movie. Well, yeah. Oh, now Stanislav. <laughs> Avinsky, I think that's how you say his name. So don't make me start and say it again, but Victor Crum, uh, you know, obviously he plays an interesting role in the story. And luckily he's not asked to talk a lot. Um, <laughs> but what did you end up thinking about him, especially, you know, kind of coming from the book and probably having a picture in your mind? Did he kind of fill that role well enough? To, and yeah. honestly, in the movie, he's not really given a ton to do. Well, he's not really given a ton to do in the book either, right? No. He's, I mean... He's a fairly flat character, but there's actually a lot to love there. Um, you know, the fact that he's into Hermione really says a lot about his character. So that is true. Even, yeah. Even though he's kind of a flat guy in in the book and he's even flatter in the movie, um, I still love him because A, he's a Quidditch player and I love Quidditch and B, he's totally into Hermione and dude, you got to respect that. So he seems like he's a smart guy. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, he's more of a physical being. <laughs> right. Um, that's the best line that Hermione ever delivers. Because that is the most awkward conversation ever. <laughs> she realizes exactly what she said, and she stuck her foot so far in her mouth at that point, and she's like... It's brilliant. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, her that's straight up a teenager becoming an adult right there it in is. one line. It is. Um she realizes exactly what she said, and that's not quite what she meant. Uh, <laughs> but and I don't even want to know what you know. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I was always very interested in who they would get to play Floor because you know in the book, and and this has got to be the hardest thing in the world. Yeah, your your character is described as the most beautiful thing on the planet, and so you have to play that and. Clemsey Posey, you know, wonderful French actress. I, I did love that they actually got a French woman to play the role uh, because it, it felt, I don't know, just something about it felt right. Obviously, she's French in the book, and so, and then she can speak French and everything. What did you think about her and, and what they gave her to do, and, and does she pull it off for you? Well, I, I do think that this is a case where I think the book gives you unfair expectations, right? Because um, she, I can't remember the creature, the, she's like part the Vila, the, yeah. Yeah, she's part Vila, which is like, I I don't even know what I had envisioned in my brain. But when I saw her on screen, I was like, that's it. Um, that being said, uh, I think that she does really well with the the limited amount of screen time that she's given. And in the scene where they have to swim to the bottom of the lake and she doesn't get her sister back, I love that moment where she's just so grateful to Harry for, for saving her sister. Um, and you get to hear her talk, and I can listen to French accents all day, um, which I just love. Um, so in that really brief moment, you really get to see um, a glimpse of her character and then uh, a, a little bit again at the end when she's in the maze um, she's clearly in over her head um, and then she is the first one to realize what has happened to Cedric um, I, it fell a little bit her character falls a little bit flat for me though 
It is one of the things about, again, that the film is, is they're so streamlined here. Yeah. And it, and it really is, this is, this is the point in the series where they made the choice that if it wasn't about Harry, that they were probably going to cut it out. The, the story had to follow Harry, and that was the one thing you couldn't cut, and everything else could go by the wayside. And you do really feel that in this film, because these characters that come in, they don't have as much to do as they do in the book uh, and in the rest of the stories, and so it is disappointing. But I, I thought she was a good choice. And, and like you said, the unfair expectations. I mean, basically, you've created a character in the book who sounds like a cross between uh, Wonder Woman and, you know, like Farrah Fawcett or something. Yeah. And it's like you just you just can't live up to that. So but I think she does uh, an adequate job for what she's given. And it's disappointing, honestly, that they don't give yeah. her more to do in the later films when she actually isn't should have been in then and she's not so well and she's a talented actress too oh, because i've fantastic. seen her in um in bruges and a couple other things that she's mm -hmm. done yes. and i i i feel like floor is a i i feel like she i'm not really sure what's lacking for me in her performance as floor because she's a really phenomenal actress but she plays floor a little bit flat too so it could be you know the script is is part of what's going on there but probably the script and and then the other part i think too is that for the most part she's just not the center of any of the scenes yeah. really and you know when you're really more of a background character for the most part you just you don't have a lot to do um i, I think the last person that i really want to talk about that was new is jeff raw playing amos diggory and mainly mm. because you know, he's in two scenes and he's phenomenal. Yeah. Yes, he's in two scenes. He's phenomenal. And, you know, there are some very significant losses of characters in Harry Potter. And, you know, I, I remember, uh, you know, reading the books and I, I didn't cry at Cedric Diggory's death uh, when I read oh, it. Oh, I did. Uh, but I did for Dumbledore. But it was so interesting for me because when we got to the films, that scene at the at the end of this movie where he he is just sobbing over his son the way a real father would yeah. you know yeah. it's so real it's it, it's so impactful that every time i you know it it gets misty up in here i get chills just thinking about yeah. it yeah whereas on the opposite side you know when you when i got to the dumbledore's death uh, for the films it was so non-eventful and and not very impactful that I was really disappointed, but this one I love that he is able to take that scene and every single time I watch this movie, make me feel those feelings and yeah. to make me, you know, tear up and depending on how how far I'm into it, you know, I, I could, you know, could get some tears going. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just, it's just so... It's so perfectly played and it's so tragic and sad. And again, and and you can see how he's a really happy, go lucky, um, very friendly guy at the beginning of the movie. We get to see him at the very beginning and at the very end. Um, and he's phenomenal in both in both scenes. But yeah, his his reaction, um, his acting at the end is just incredible. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. 
Well, and it's wonderful. I mean, he the whole time, and I mean, even in the book, all he is is a proud father. You know, he mm-hmm. is so proud of his son, and he brags about his son all the time. That's all he does. Yeah. And to see what happens at the end is just so wonderful from an acting standpoint that he brings you into those emotions of a father who would just be completely, utterly destroyed by losing his child. And I, I, I love it I, in the sense that I love the way the actor plays the scene. So I feel what he's feeling, even though I'm not a yeah. dad, you know, and it's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Same here. Like I don't have children, but man, I really feel that loss along with him right there. Well, transitioning a little bit, we talked about how this book, you know, really it, it's a it's a bigger world and we feel that in the film. And one of the ways that we feel that is that we get introduced to two new academies of magic, uh, different schools. And it, it's really the first time we realized there were other schools for magic in the world. Yeah. And so I wanted to ask you, because they make some interesting choices for these, uh, the Bow Battens and the Dumbstring, what did you think about the way that they portrayed those? Because they make a very distinct choice for each one that is definitely not from the book. Well, I do think it's interesting. The first thing that really stands out to me, and I honestly can't remember if it's like this in the in the book or not, but it really stands out to me that one is an all-girl school and one is an all-boys school. Yeah, that's definitely not in the book. <laughs> so it's like... So where do the French boys go to school for their wizarding lessons and where do... They're discriminated against, just like the girls in Russia. Yeah, the girls just don't get to learn over there. Like, what's going on? I think there's a lot of stereotypes happening for both of these schools um, in terms of how they're portrayed. Like, the French girls are sexy and the the Russian boys are... um, Well, they're still sexy, but they're more brooding. Yeah, they're brooding. And even their (laughs) acrobatics are rough around the edges. But he's still fun. I love how I love their modes of transportation. I think that's really cool. I want to go riding on that boat. It was an interesting choice for me. I, I think the reason that they do it in the film is just to make it visually pop without really having yeah. to explain anything. So you always know a bow batten, you always know a dumb string, and there's there's no question, you know. Um the only thought I had, and I, I said this to my wife when we were watching the movie, and obviously we're reading up to the Harry Potter series to to begin on a new journey uh, in Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, where we are going to visit America and we're going to be introduced yeah. to the Wizarding World there. Makes me wonder if she doesn't kick herself a little bit at this point for not including the American school in here just so that people were already aware of it. Um, I wonder if she thinks that to herself, oh, if I just included the American school, because then people would have already been familiar with that school. Hey, but we're getting our own book, so who cares? Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> um, I just, I wonder. But that's a great point. Yeah, I just wonder if she thinks that to herself now, so that when she went back, people had a familiarity. Or, It'd be really fun to see what kind of American stereotypes I would have put oh, into that. God. <laughs> We would, I, would we have come over in parachute pants and yeah, so. there would have been red, white, yeah. and blue fireworks everywhere. Well, the I mean, so the other big thing that we add to this bigger world is the Triwizard Tournament, which I think is such an interesting so idea. Cool. And in the book, I mean, the 
tests are really incredible. So I wanted you to see what you thought about the way that they kind of bring those to life in the film. Does it does it do justice for you? Well, I I love the Triwizard Tournament. The whole concept of it is super cool. Um, that's the one thing that you really miss out on, though, because in the books, what we what we really get to spend a lot of time doing in the books is just freaking out about these challenges with Harry and Ron and Hermione as they're trying to figure them out or not figure them out, um, depending on who Harry is fighting with at the moment. Um, so we really miss like the pure frustration of him trying to figure out the challenges. We see it a little bit, but it's like barely scratching the surface. No, I think that is something that is, is really interesting uh, about this, you know, and I, I'm with you that I kind of miss that sense of panic that they have, you know, because I feel like that it goes really fast for them. You know, everything just moves so fast in the movie, even though it's a long movie uh, that you don't really get to spend time so it really does feel uh, there is something missing. It feels convenient at times, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and like in the books, there's whole sections where Hermione's like getting on Harry's ass, like, dude, you haven't worked on this and it's coming up and he just keeps brushing it off. So there's a lot of care, inner interpersonal stuff that happens with the characters that we really miss out on. Um, we do get to see Harry and Cedric working together a mm-hmm. little bit. Yeah. But I wanted more of that because that's also one of my favorite things about the book. Well, and I have to say that, I, I you know, I like the way that they changed the first task. I, I mm-hmm. thought it was good. Uh, you know, obviously in a film, you need things to be more visual. And mm-hmm. so having it, you know, be bigger and bolder and, you know, chasing Harry around the castle and all that stuff. That's more exciting for a film. So it made sense. I think the underwater scene felt very true for the most part to the book. Yeah. And that was probably the closest one, I think. Yeah. And it's the last one that I'm really disappointed in. Um, I don't like the maze scene in the movie. And partly because it just seems so lame. Like this maze doesn't have any of the things from the book. And it just seems kind of like, a possessed it seems very ho-hum yeah it yeah. just it doesn't really seem like this is meant to test their magical skills it really mm-hmm. just seems like it's meant to test their running ability <laughs> um <laughs> because it's like a temperamental fern forest yeah instead of being like yeah. you know you're meeting a sphinx and you have to think through logically the the tough question that they're going to ask you and all these kind of things uh fighting off certain types of monsters, that kind of stuff, you know, things that you would expect in a magical maze instead of just one that's like temperamental. Yeah. And like the, the biggest in, in that scene, like the biggest threat is the vines that come up out of the ground and grab you. Yeah, And then they never fully explain what happens to Victor. Like he's bewitched. So he attacks he attacks Cedric, but not Harry. And why? Like, there's so much that j- they just really gloss over there. Um, yeah, I do agree that they just totally rushed that whole section. Well, and and I don't know if it's because they didn't want to spend too much time in that maze, just because I, I feel like, 
you know, if you have to ha- stop and think about a riddle from a sphinx or whatever, it, it's a yeah. lot more. In- it, it's a lot more to it. And this way, they can, I guess, cut it down and make it go faster. But it also just yeah. felt lame. I mean, it was it, like it did. This is your last challenge, really? Yeah. So yeah, I mean, they they from a from a filmmaker standpoint, right? Like they really did have to cut that out of the script. It just it would have added like twenty minutes, and the movie is already so long. Um, yeah, I guess probably. I mean, I, I get them rushing through it. It's just as a fan of the book, it's disappointing. And if you hadn't read the book, um, it it's just like that's a challenge. Like I don't get it. Yeah, exactly. Running and away what was Floor from so afraid of? a pine like, tree. Yeah, like <laughs> at least like throw Jack Nicholson in there or something. Yeah. Like carrying around his axe. I mean, there's nothing scary in that hedge maze. There are no girls at the end of the hall going. Come and play Come with play us. With us I'm sorry, I can't do that, Dave. Um, <laughs> yeah, nothing scary like that. So, no. What is awesome, I think, and I think they did a great job of condensing it. Um, it, I, I will say, the cutting in it is probably a little bit too abrupt, but the Quidditch World Cup just mm-hmm. looked cool. I mean, they did a that great job of bringing that. Yeah. So, I will say though, uh, in the book. Smartly, Rowling places it in a, a forested area in England that doesn't have a lot of people, kind of remote. Uh, you know, hosting your event that is supposed to be secret on the cliffs of Dover, probably <laughs> not the best idea for the wizarding world. Right? The people are going to be like, well, what's happening over there? I'm just here on vacation. Why is it so loud and red and green over there? Yeah. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> It it looks visually appealing and it's yeah. awesome. It just it doesn't make any sense uh, logically whatsoever. But I, the rest of it, I, I thought like the tent, you know, the TARDIS tent that they have, which is yeah. so cool. Um, the the rest of that scene, the the stadium is is pretty incredible looking for the most part, and so it's it's beautifully done in that way. And so I, I think it it plays off well and it gives you a taste of just kind of how big the wizarding world really is you know because so far it had felt so small yeah and and the book did such a great job of that in that section too again that's another one of those great amazing parts of the book that's really long and you get to see so much and learn so much about the wizarding world that they had to just blaze through in the movie so if you haven't read the book it at the very least, you should read the beginning for the all the awesome Quidditch stuff because it's just so cool. But I'm so glad they still did it this time around. Oh, me too. I mean, obviously, you can't cut that part out. Too. Yeah. I mean, everything is streamlined there, and the entire mm-hmm. story is um, condensed and made as simple as possible because th- that is one of the things about this book in general is it is one of the most compl it is i think probably her most complicated plot yeah it really and there's a lot of moving parts going on and they really do just take everything and put it the bare minimum and you really are missing out a lot if you haven't read this the actual story so yeah i'm with you go read the book too uh plus we get to do port keys for the first time in this movie which is really cool 
Um, I'm pretty sure I get my pants fire read to travel by Port Kilo. <laughs> like that looks freaking terrifying. It was. It was very. I, I'm right there with you. I can't imagine traveling like that. I would probably throw up. So yeah, I love how the three people who can land appropriately are Arthur, Cedric, and his dad, and they just come floating down, all smiles. It's adorable. It's a great little sequence. Ah, well. What's interesting about the the film, and we talked, uh, I think I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but there is a looming threat, and the movie is one of the funniest, but from the beginning, and even the book started this way, and I remember reading the book and being like, what the F is going on? Because <laughs> it's just such a strange scene, you know, this muggle caretaker in this house making tea and you're like, what is happening? But really what's being set up is this bookend of Voldemort looming over everything and finally finding a way to return. And I think that that is... She did a great job, I think, in transitioning the series. And the movie does that too because it starts off dark and it ends pretty dark. Yeah. And you know that the series, as you know, Hermione says, things are going to change now, isn't it? Um, and it really will. It's it's going to change. And I, I think that looming threat, they do a very good job of the film of portraying that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, even in the happy-go-lucky moments and the comedic moments in this movie, there's always like this feeling of tension in the air. And I remember the book feeling that way too, just the whole way through. And that's one of the things that I think they really succeeded at is just making everything. You're just kind of always on edge a little bit, right? Even when like Malfoy gets turned into a ferret, yeah, <laughs> which is hilarious <laughs> and he totally deserves it. But there's something going on that just makes you feel antsy that something is about to happen and it you know it's the triwizarding tournament it's that you know they don't get to play quidditch this year it's that there's all of these weird people in the castle it's that their new defense against the dark arts teacher is the weirdest guy that they've ever had there ever yeah that looming threat and then when voldemort finally shows up he's so gross and creepy yes. and it's such a great payoff that scene at the end in the graveyard because it's all, the tension is all built up to that moment. Well, I think that really, what a great way, because we didn't talk about him as a new character, but it's the perfect time to talk about Ray Fiennes as Voldemort. Yeah. And I think if they did anything right in all of the Harry Potter films, is they got it right with Ray Fiennes as Voldemort. He's absolutely 100% perfect as he who shall not be named because I don't want to name him because he's so freaking creepy. <laughs> he is creepy too and he's so he's so off the wall and unpredictable like when he's yelling at Harry to pick up his wand and fight him the energy that he like this antsy like super over the top energy that he's bringing to the character it's like it's terrifying because I mean, I didn't really expect, I didn't really expect what he was going to bring to that role. Um, and man, like he's so pushy about it. Like that would freak me the F out if I had a guy like that, like pointing at me and screaming at me and running circles. Ugh, he's creepy. And I love the nose. I hated the nose at mm -hmm. first, but now I love it. Well, and it's kind of like Hannibal and the Joker had a child. 
Yes. You know, like this just manic, weird, super creepy, has all these weird tics. You have no idea what's going to happen. And, and that's, he plays the role like that. But he's also mm-hmm. this looming threat of this presence where he is really in control of the scenes that he's in. Yeah. And I, I think that's what makes that scene with Harry and him so good in the graveyard is he's going kind of nuts and everything, screaming at Harry, don't run away from me. And I love, I mean, Daniel Radcliffe, I think it's his best scene in the film. I is the, the face of determination that he gives that if this is going to be my end, I will make it such an end. Uh, I will go out being the hero. Uh, and he's not thinking about it like that, but he's just saying to himself in his mind, no, I, I'm not going to go out like a coward, down. you know? And I love that scene and it, it it's played so beautifully and so perfectly. And of course, you know, his parents appear and, and Cedric and yeah. the old man and everything. And it's, it's a wonderfully, I remember in the book that it wasn't Cedric dying. It was his parents appearing that all of a sudden Ugh. got me. And you're like just that, like, that oh. whole scene, the whole scene. It's so, it's so emotional and terrifying. Like Harry's getting pieces of him cut out. Like he's getting his arm cut open. He's just witnessed a friend and colleague and, uh, frenemy be killed in front of right in front of his eyes and then like that already had me right and then Voldemort was so creepy scary and then his parents show up and I was just like a 15 year old wreck it was terrible um and the movie does a great job it gets me all tense and it gets me really choked up especially when his parents show up and watching him escape from the scene with Cedric is just so oh my god there's just so many feelings that happen in that scene phenomenal yeah it's it's really well done and I I think you know any problems that I do have with the movie are really um they're they're put at ease in that sense that that Mm -hmm. scene the pivotal scene is done so perfectly and so well that I really can't complain about it you know like yeah it, it makes it it covers a multitude of sins that the rest of the movie i think creates yeah uh, and so i i really do like that and what's interesting to me and this will be something probably that we talk a little bit more about with the next film but i wanted to just mention here is that this is the place where the government we see begins to be w- unwilling to acknowledge that there's something going on. There's something wrong. Mm-hmm. That Voldemort's back. And this is where I, I think it's they create a false narrative that he's not back. And, you know, Dumbledore even says that in his speech. Uh, you know, the the ministry doesn't want me to tell you this. But, you know, Cedric Diggory was killed by Lord Voldemort. And I think what a powerful thing. How much more relevant is that now than it ever right. was about governments not being willing to face up to what's really going on and just kind of sticking to the narrative they've crafted, whether it's true or not. You know, that whole scene is perfectly dovetailed with this beautiful tracking shot when Dumbledore is making his speech. There's this beautiful shot where they pan up to the roof of the um, Great Hall and it's no longer enchanted to see the outside And that one shot with the black Hogwarts banners and the real ceiling just really, 
it makes me feel everything that I had felt in that previous scene in the graveyard again, like, oh my God, the weight of what we just witnessed and what Harry Mm -hmm. just went through feels so extremely real in that moment. I love that, that shot. It's beautiful. The, the quote that Dumbledore gives in the book, uh, it's a little bit different in the movie, but it's pretty much the same. He says, dark times lie ahead of us and there will be a time when we must choose between what is easy and what is right. Mm-hmm. And what I love about that quote is how it encapsulates every generation. You know, there is always going to be time for us to do what is easy or to do what is right. And usually what is right costs. Yeah. Just like freedom. Uh, just like the fight that Harry's going to be in for the rest of the books. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just a beautiful way to start that out. And it, it's beautiful because... It, there's this small thing that happens in this film, and, and unless you've probably read the books or watched the movie a bunch of times, you might not pick it up, but when Voldemort comes back, he kind of tells the story about how he lost his powers, and he says, you know, that Lily Potter gave her life for her son, and it was love. I, I couldn't touch Harry, and he says it was old magic, and this idea of old magic versus brute strength and it reminded me so much, and I'm pretty sure that Rowling got this straight from the Chronicles of Narnia, which I know she loves, with that idea of the deeper magic still from the foundation of the beginning of time, that it's love that wins. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that's what Voldemort doesn't understand. Yeah. And what's great is that Voldemort is beat the first time by love, old magic, And it's also going to lead to his downfall in the last book. And it's a wonderful mirror. I love how Rowling does this in her series where she gives you all the pieces you need to put the pieces together beforehand. But you're so immersed in everything. You don't even realize. No, you don't. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's something that she does really well. And going back to our friend David Tennant, that's something that the that uh, Russell T Davies was doing when during that period of time on on Doctor Who is they leave you all these little nuggets in all of these episodes and it would build up to this one big thing, and and I think to me that feels inherently British like that's a very British way of of storytelling. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's how it feels to me, um, and. You know, to be totally honest, I was 100% anti-Harry Potter when these books were first coming out. I was not going to read them, not going to do it. Um, but I broke down when the movie started coming out. And I'm so glad that I did because I got to watch a rolling grow as an author and do things like this, like you're talking about, where all of these themes and bits and pieces and clues into these characters' psyches come together at the end to make this one giant beautiful picture. Yeah, it, it's what was interesting is that Rowling and the films and the books, you know, when they're doing it right, and the books always do it right, but the films right. don't always, but they are weaving together a tapestry and you're watching it being weaved, but you don't know what it's going to look like until the very end, you know, and, yeah. but she's giving you everything that you need to know what it would like look like at the end. And that's just, it's really beautiful. And I think, 
you know, the British authors, they knew how to do that. You know, you've got Rowling, C.S. Lewis, Tolkien. I mean, uh, like yeah. you were talking about Russell T. Davies understanding that with um, some of the best years of Doctor Who. So uh, there is something that is is very familiar when you step into something created by a British person. <laughs> and I don't mm-hmm. know if it's just something in the water, but they do a great job of it. So um, it's the mystery. The Brits love that mystery. Maybe maybe it's that um, that London fog or something. Maybe it's just <laughs> must be. Yeah. So, last thing I wanted to ask you before we got to the ratings. You know, this is the first movie, and it uh, it will continue the trend because we won't have um, any more John Williams. Right. And so, I wanted to ask you what you thought about Patrick Doyle's score here for this film because all the Harry Potter movies, the music does play a pretty important role you know uh yeah john williams made sure that it would because he put a stamp on it exactly so does this work for you so uh the music definitely works for me here because it doesn't um one way to know if music is working for you is if you don't realize that it's happening right so to me in this film the music doesn't jump out at me it's just happening and i don't feel like i'm being manipulated at any point um, but on the other hand, it is lacking that John Williams-ness that we have come to expect from the Harry Potter movies where, okay, maybe I am recognizing the score, but it's because I'm moving emotionally with it, whereas a bad score makes you feel like you're being emotionally manipulated. Um, so I'm in, that, I'm in that happy medium here. I'm totally happy with the score. I don't hate it. It's not a John Williams score, but... I'm going to leave it at that. It's a good score. It does its job. Gets me through the movie. It gets me through the movie and it doesn't take me out of it. Uh, the only part that really took me out of the movie was actually the um, the band that plays during the ball. Yes. Yes. I was like, I don't know who these guys are, but they're lame. Yeah. Um, That's the only part that takes me out of the movie. For me, being such a Williams fan and what he had created... I don't like Doyle's score, and it's not because it's bad, but it, it's just not a Williams score. And and the problem is, is that it, it feels too trebly, and it feels too very bright horn sound, very bright string sounds. Whereas there was a real depth and bass to whatever it is that um, Williams had created, and yeah, even well, his Williams Harry Potter really theme. using those French horns. Yeah, and so. I don't like Doyle's use of the really high brass and the very high string sound. You don't like the instrumentation. No, it sounds way too tinny, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can see that. And it, it lacks the emotional depth. And so I, I... I, It does lack the emotional depth. You're totally right about that. And so I just miss it. And I think it's hard because I... I and it was disappointing. And it wasn't William's fault. He was just too busy that year yeah. to be able to come back or he probably would have and I probably would have loved the score it's just a lesser score and you know it's it's nothing against Patrick Doyle because I love some of his other work but for me it didn't feel in line enough with the rest of what Williams had created in the places he was especially was starting to explore in the third film and mm. I just would have loved to have seen the complexity he would have added to the fourth um, mm-hmm. This one just lacks complexity and depth. Yeah. So um, it, it, I, I would agree with you there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, 
that aside, I kind of wanted to see we have had a I just love talking through this film with you and and honestly with the Harry Potter films and the books you could talk for hours on end and you do because we're, that's <laughs> what we do Harry Potter. yeah it's Harry <laughs> Potter where where do you rate this one what's your uh ranking you know um out of five where where would you put this one I'd probably give this one a four out of five I think this one is my favorite of the movies as well awesome that's great for me I think this is probably 3.75 out of 5 um <laughs> the and and it's it's because there's a lot of story that's missing and there the, is, yeah. and the, and it's not just that but it's also I feel like some of it feels a little bit disjointed and the more yeah. I watch it the more I'm not so happy with some of the editing choices that are made so mm -hmm. that it doesn't feel like it always flows well because there's a lot of big scene jumps yeah, uh, there and are things like that. So I, I feel like there are some ways that you could have massaged it and edited it better to make that help. But I also feel like and this is a problem with all the Harry Potter movies after Chamber of Secrets is that there's a lot of important plot points that get missed. And then there's the ones that they put in and they I don't always agree which ones those should be from the screenwriter. Right. And so it's a little bit frustrating, um, but this is a hard novel to to put into being in the first place on film because, like I said, this really is Rowling's most complicated plot. I mean, the storyline with Barty Crouch Jr. is so much more intricate, mm -hmm. as as well is what everything else that's happening. So everything with the tournament, is yes, just, oh gosh, it's a dense story. Yeah, I mean, there's whole characters that are in the book that aren't even yeah. in this movie that play a huge part in the book and mm -hmm. to the rest of the characters. So, um, yeah. Also, one last point. Harry wins the tournament, and in the book it's a big deal because he takes that thousand galleons and he gives it to the Weasley twins who oh, will use that, that to pay for a store that they will create later on. It's a big yeah. plot point, but they totally leave that out of the movie, and it's a little bit disappointing because... Uh, it, it, they start to do shorthand big time, yeah. and I feel like they take the easy way out sometimes when they shouldn't. So, but otherwise, it is it is a fun movie. I'm so glad that we're doing this series. I love going through Harry Potter. Just all it makes me think is I need to reread the books now. Yeah, same here. I really want to reread them now. Yeah. So, which is great, and everybody should go read them. And we get to do this because we've got amazing associate producers through Patreon. We have Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson. And I say this every week, but I mean it every week. I really appreciate these guys. And it's because of their support of the network through Patreon that we can bring all the shows to you each and every week. And the reason that is is because we're a listener-supported network, and there's just no way that we can afford <laughs> out of our pockets those of us who are on the network to run an, this amazing thing we call Trek FM, over 20 different shows, special feeds, we need your help to make sure that it all keeps coming to you as best the quality we can without having to all of all the ads and everything else coming at you. We just want to give you great content. So go to patreon.com slash trekfm and you can see how you can become part of our team and make sure that you get all of this content each and every week. Again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm. Go and see how you can sign up today. One last thing uh, before we get out of here. 
we are doing our review contest and really need your help uh, to get some reviews there on the old iTunes. And so if you're in the U.S., go to the iTunes store, find the 602 Club, write a quick review there, give us a star rating, and you'll be entered for our drawing. Everybody that's already reviewed us and everybody that does review us coming up here, you will be entered to win Batman v Superman, the Ultimate Edition, as a digital copy so I would love to give that film to you. I highly recommend the film to you in that version. And um, you could be the winner. So just go over the iTunes, spend a couple of minutes, maybe a minute, giving us a rating and review, and it could be you. So, well, Megan, it is always a joy to have one of our wonderful sisters from Educating Geeks over here on Trek FM. And... Tell everybody where they can find you, and especially about that other podcasting network that they should be listening to. Yeah, so, well, we love visiting. Um, it's great that we have a, a space we can come and hang out with you guys, Matt. We love being a part of Trek FM. Um, so Educating Geeks is a podcast where we like to bring new people into our favorite fandoms. Um, that's why you find me and Alice here on the 602 Club a lot because we have similar missions. We want new people to experience some of our favorite things. We don't revoke geek cards at Educating Geeks. You can find us at EducatingGeeks.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to search for Educating Geeks. Uh, we just we are in the process of publishing all of the episodes that we recorded live at Phoenix Comic Con. We talked about American Horror Story, uh, Penny Dreadful, and Labyrinth. So if those are some things that you love or know someone who needs to be introduced to those things, we hope you'll check us out. It's a lot of fun. And we have Matthew and uh, our good buddy Norm on Educating Geeks from time to time. So you'll hear some familiar voices. That's right. We had a blast talking about Dune. Uh, the mm -hmm. book, and then you guys visited the 602 Club, and we talked about the film. The movie. That's yeah. right. So, you know, if you're driving somewhere, that would make a nice back-to-back -back because we had a blast doing that. So so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can also find me doing the orb here on the network with Chris Jones where we talk exclusively about Deep Space Nine. I'm also doing our books and comics show about Star Trek, called Literary Treks, and I do that with Dan and Bruce, and we have such a great time. We also get a chance to interview the authors, which is so much fun. Of course, you can also find me on Aggressive Negotiations with John Mills. You can find that over on thenerdparty.com and, of course, on iTunes, and that is our Star Wars podcast. It's so much fun. We have a great time just digging into Star Wars things, so make sure you check that out. And thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? <laughs>